Well, first of all, I want to thank all of our brethren around the world for uh, your prayers, the many cards and expressions of support toward Carol and me, but also toward all who are affected by the COVID-19 virus, probably the uh, Delta variant uh, following the summer camp this year. Uh, I know that a lot of the cards mentioned they're praying for all who are affected, and so you may have had it and not realized how many people were praying for you. And I just want to make that uh, statement because uh, people do send cards, they do a lot of things and ex- give expressions of support and love and, and prayers. And while we often take these comments off of the sermons and we send them out, I, I certainly want that to go out to all of our brethren around the world as not, we're not able to respond to every every card and letter that we've received, but uh, thank you very much. Now, regarding today's sermon, uh, there's an incident in 1 Samuel that's very well known, but a specific lesson is almost universally overlooked. And when I say universally overlooked, I'm talking about in the church. So today I'm going to speak about God's command to Saul regarding the Amalekites, his reaction to the command, his response to it, and then explore if there is not a lesson in it for you and for me. So let's turn over to 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter. 1 Samuel 15. And we'll read of this incident that took place there. This is really one of the most important chapters when we think about it that we have in terms of uh, the life of Saul and the end result of that and how uh, David came into power and David's lineage became a dynasty from which Christ was born. But here in 1 Samuel The 15th chapter, beginning in verse 1, it says, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Eternal. Verse 2, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, hold your place here or... Uh, You can just wait as I read from Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter, verses 17 to 19, where it gives us a little bit of background. You could also read from Exodus, the 17th chapter, where the actual event took place. But Deuteronomy 25 gives us some background on why God was so uh, against the Amalekites. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17. He says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when they were tired, you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. So these were individuals who did not attack the main force. They attacked the weak people at the end of the column, as it were, the tired, the weary, perhaps mothers and children, 
and elderly folks, those are the ones that they went after. Therefore it shall be when the eternal your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, and the land which the eternal your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. We read these things, and sometimes I think we're unable to understand them in the true perspective. When we look at it, God is going to resurrect these people someday. But when you have a nation, as we see in the Middle East, uh, the, the wars that continue to go on and the feuds that, that take place there, God was going to take that group of people out of the equation. So back in 1 Samuel 15, it says in verse 3, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Again, we can be judgmental of what God's mind was on this, but he understood what the results would be if this nation were left to continue. Even the children would grow up and the feud would continue. Verse 4, So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. And then we see that he allowed the Kenites, in fact, told them to leave. They had been very helpful to the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, verse 6, and now verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So they had a different view of things. They had a different way of interpreting God's command to them, they interpreted it different from the way that God had commanded. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, verse 10, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul... It was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Notice that he set up a monument for himself. This individual who, when you read the whole story of Saul's life, was so shy and was hiding amongst the, the old King James Version, the stuff. I love that expression. He was hiding amongst the stuff or the... Equipment, as the New King James says. Uh, now he's setting up a monument for himself. He has gotten a little bit high and mighty and is no longer the humble individual that he once was. Then Samuel went to Saul, verse 13, and Saul said to him, so here's Saul's opening comments to Samuel. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. 
But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Now, this is very interesting because in Saul's mind, at least at this point in time, he says, I have kept the commandment of the Lord. And yet it is, always, it is obvious to anyone who reads the account that no, he had not kept the commandment of the Lord. And you know, this is something that is very, very important for all of us. Because too often we may be guilty of reinterpreting the command, of seeing it in the way that we want to see it, as opposed to what the command actually is. And so this is one of the lessons that I think that we often miss. We look at what Saul said and we say, well, how could he be so stupid? How could he be so foolish? And yet I see it from time to time where people have a direct command and they reinterpret it in their own mind. Verse 15, Saul said, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Well, it was really the people. It wasn't my fault. It was the people. But they did so for a good purpose. They didn't do anything wrong. They wanted to sacrifice these oxen and these sheep to the Lord or the eternal your God. So why are you so harsh on this? Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. We might say in our modern language, shut up. I don't want to hear anymore. And I will tell you what the eternal said to me last night. And he said to him, okay, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the eternal anoint you king over Israel? Now the Eternal sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed or exterminated. That was the clear command that he was given. And Saul knew what the command was, but he allowed himself to reinterpret it the way that he wanted it to be. And then, why then did you not obey the voice of the Eternal? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the eternal? Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the eternal and gone on the mission on which the eternal sent me and brought back Agag, king of, Malak, of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, I brought back the king, but I destroyed the Amalekites. Oh, those sheep and those oxen. He didn't want to say anything about. And yet it was very clear that he violated the command that he had been given. But the people took of the plunder. It's the people's fault. The people. They took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. So he knew that all that should have been utterly destroyed. But they did so to sacrifice to the eternal your God in Gilgal. So, you know, Samuel, why are you so upset about this? They, they, they did it for a good purpose. They really didn't do anything wrong. They were doing it because they wanted to sacrifice to your God. And Samuel said, verse 22, As the eternal is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, 
as in obeying the voice of the eternal. So all of your other rationalizations don't amount to anything compared to obedience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And then in verse 23, a very famous verse, for rebellion. Now, what is rebellion? Well, rebellion is the rejection of the commandments of God, instructions that might be given, the laws of the land, whatever it might be, when we rebel against those things. It says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, of worshiping false gods. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So it was not only rebellion, but it was a stubborn attitude that was there to just do what one wanted to do as opposed to what one was supposed to do. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Now, that was a pretty heavy penalty for what he had done or failed to do. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. No, it's not just God's commandments, but your words, Samuel. As though Samuel wasn't uh, simply giving the words of the Lord. And he said, I did so because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, when he sees the, the reward or the penalty that he's going to have to pay, he's been rejected from being king. Suddenly, he has a change of attitude at that point in time. And in reality, he begins to beg that the decision can be changed. And he says, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the eternal. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Verse 29, And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. God was not going to change his mind concerning this. For he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the eternal your God. Now, what was he saying here in verse 30? He says, please, you know, honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Don't embarrass me in front of the people. Surely what he was saying here, that I may worship the eternal your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the eternal. And then we see that Samuel did with Agag what Saul should have done. It's a very interesting story when you think about it. And I know it may be difficult to put yourself into the, the picture there. But what Saul did is not as rare as we think. How often we as individuals reinterpret a commandment, 
For example, tithing would be a good example. How many people reinterpret the tithing command? Well, I'll do it if I can afford it. Or the Sabbath command. Well, I'll work on the Sabbath if I have to. You know, when Worldwide broke up, Mr. Dukach gave a sermon in which he uh, gave an example of a man that had lost his job over the Sabbath. And then, like so many things that were very questionable at, at best, that he said, and the church had to support him $40,000 a year. Well, that was back in the 90s, I guess, maybe even 80s, when that supposedly happened. And I can tell you, as a minister at the time, I knew what our limits were. We actually had a checkbook, every, every minister or every pastor did. And we were allowed to write emergency assistance at that time for someone who needed it. But the limits, no matter how you interpret, could never have gotten anywhere near that amount of money. But the idea was that should a man lose his job over the Sabbath? So let's reinterpret the Sabbath to mean that, well, you keep the Sabbath as long as it's convenient or as long as you don't have to lose your job. It was a reinterpretation of the law. And people do this in many ways, small ways, large ways, all the time. And you'll have to fill in the blanks of how that might apply to you. Mr. Herbert Armstrong often went back to the beginning. He'd go back to Genesis, the third chapter as an example, even sometimes earlier than that. But we read here in the third chapter of Genesis that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, the commandment had been made, you can read it in the previous chapter, that God told Adam that there are certain trees you can eat of. In fact, all of them were good. But there was one tree that you leave alone. Now, how many times do you think God had to tell Adam that? And when Adam disobeyed, what was God's response? Oh, let's sit down and let's talk about this. Let's notice. And the woman said to the serpents, showing that she understood what the command was, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So she knew what the command was. There was nothing unambiguous about it. How many times God had given it to him? Maybe once. Maybe he said it more than once. We don't know. Then the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. We know this story, don't we? We've heard it many times. But when she saw that the tree was good for food, perhaps she saw birds pecking away at some of the fruit or animals underneath the tree. The fruit had dropped down, so it was good for food. That it was pleasant to the eyes. It really looked nice like a, a beautiful, luscious peach. 
That's not what it was, by the way, I don't think. Or an apple, whatever, you fill in the blank. But it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. If we eat of this, then we're going to be able to make our own decisions. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then we see that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked because the serpent had told them certain things about their bodies, about the fact that they would not die. They had this immortal soul. It would live on and all this sort of thing. We can kind of read between the lines in some of this. But after hiding out from God because guilt had set in, and they finally come out from behind the tree or the bush, he says in verse 10, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that there was something wrong with your physical body? You know, God gives us instruction about the use of our bodies, when certain things are appropriate and when they're not. But how many times do we find that even in the church of God, we have people who reinterpret that to mean that, well, as long as we're going to get married, it's okay. Or however they want to interpret it. Way too many young people take the commands of God, not the one given here, the commands that are given elsewhere, fleeing fornication and adultery and all the other things that are wrong, and they reinterpret them to suit their own desires. So he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Now notice verse 12. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So notice the, the not the distraction, but the, uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for, the, uh, the switching of, of blame. It really wasn't my fault, God. And really, he wasn't blaming the woman. He was blaming God because God gave him this woman. And so now God is the bad guy. If God hadn't given me this woman, everything would be just fine. And how often we see that, how the, the minister in some cases becomes the bad guy when somebody else has done something wrong. I remember a lesson that I've learned, that I learned many, many years ago and I've passed it on to younger ministers when I've had the opportunity to spend time with them. And that is that the people you will spend the most time trying to help are the ones that will kick you in the stomach later on. I remember, a, I, I could give a number of examples, but just not to be too specific, but I remember a family that I spent more time in that particular congregation trying to help than any other family, not even close. And the wife would call me up. Her husband was into pornography and all kinds of problems. And... Anyway, I'd go over and I'd anoint them sometimes, go over and try to help them and talk to them about their marriage problems. And then when I moved on, I got this letter from the man. And it would start out something like, uh, I never liked you. Uh, you never helped us. 
you only spend time with us because it was your duty. And then the letter went downhill from there. Uh, you know, it, it's amazing how this so often happens. You know, when a couple is having trouble in marriage and they call the minister in or the counselor, just even outside counselor, they really don't want help. Then you might say, no, 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 I, I want help. What they really want is they want a third party to agree with them against their, their mate. And that becomes very obvious because you ask people, well, who can you change? When they know the right answer, well, I can change me. Can you change the other person? No. So what is your responsibility? Well, it's, it's take care of me. But she or he did this or that, and it goes like that for whatever length of time you, you deal with it. It's always the other person's fault. And like I said, when all else fails, you blame the counselor because he didn't help you. That's experience over many years' time. So he blames not just the woman, but God. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree and I ate. Yeah, it was her fault, but really it was your fault, God, because you gave her to me. So it's a total turning upside down as to who's at fault. Who was it? They ate of the tree? Adam and Eve. But who did they blame? God. Well, the woman blamed the serpent who deceived her, and it goes on from there. But then the the end result of it was, now think about this. It was one action, one decision, very bad decision, but what are the consequences of that decision? We today are still suffering from the consequences of that decision. Now, we're not guilty of their sin, but they set the world on the wrong track and allow this serpent to continue. And so we make similar mistakes. We don't sin in exactly the same way. We don't go out and eat a tree that God, a literal tree that God said don't eat of. But we still feed on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so just as Saul reinterpreted what the command was, we see that Adam and Eve, because the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, it was a tree to make one wise, God's been hiding out from us, so let's try it. And once we made the decision, it's God's fault. It's amazing. It's remarkable, this human nature that we have. We don't have to go very far in the scriptures to learn another lesson or to have this lesson come home to us. Chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Some think because it didn't say she conceived again. Some think they may have been twins. I don't know. I don't know that we could prove that one way or the other. Speculation. But anyway, she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, 
but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, Josephus says that Cain was forcing the ground. I'm not sure exactly how that would be, you know, back back then. We force the ground today with artificial fertilizers, with, you know, pouring nitrogen and, you know, just various other things and phosphates and, and, and trying to force the ground to produce more where we can grow the same crop over and over and over and over again. And the land becomes more and more depleted of the small nutrients that are needed uh, for the plants to thrive and, and for us to thrive. They may look good, but it's, it's not the same. So I don't know what the problem was. I don't think anybody can say for sure. Josephus, uh, some people think that he's right about everything, but he has some pretty wild statements there at different places in time. Um, so we, we can't take that as, as gospel, as they say. But the fact is that there was something wrong about Cain's offering because God did not respect it. Some say, oh, well, it was just a vegetable offering and it was not a, an animal uh, pointing to Christ's uh, sacrifice. It, it doesn't do us much good to speculate because the fact of the matter is God did not respect his offering. And so Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. He was very angry. Who was he angry at? So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? What's the problem here? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So obviously he was not doing well, in whatever way that was. But if you do well, you'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. Sin's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. You should rule your emotions. You should rule your actions. So, verse 8, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Well, what it would appear here is that Cain was jealous of his brother because his brother's sacrifice was accepted, but his own was not. So it couldn't possibly be Cain's fault. It had to be his brother's fault. And if he can just get rid of his brother, somehow, in his perverted mind, that would solve the problem, which, of course, we know certainly would not. I find a, another verse here in this chapter to be quite interesting. Down in verse 13, well, let's go to verse uh, 11. It says, So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Now, God could have killed Cain, could have given the death penalty, but he did not, for whatever reason here. But verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You're not being fair, God. This punishment is far greater than I can bear. Interesting. Interesting how human nature is the same 
down through time. How much trust do you put in your heart, in your thoughts, in the way that you interpret things? How much trust do you put in, in your heart? You know, the world says, trust your heart. Trust your heart. Do what is right in your own mind. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Do what you know to be right. But is that what God says? There were scriptures that we used to cut our teeth on in the early years of the church. Scriptures that were quoted quite often. We don't hear them quoted as often, although I did quote this back in November, another sermon. But in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, some of you have it memorized. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know one's own heart? Because our heart naturally is deceptive, very deceptive, above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 14, 12 I won't take time to turn over there. Proverbs 14:12. It's also in 16:25. Says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I think that's the Old King James, which I memorized long before the New King James. But the there's a way that seems right. It seems right and good to us. It's what we want to do, and so we will rationalize around whatever it takes so that we can interpret things the way we want them to be. It's a way that seems right unto a man. But the end result does not turn out so well. It's death, the ways of death. In Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, we see the right attitude that we all should try to apply in our lives. I hope that we all do this. Jeremiah said in verse 23, O eternal, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. I know that it's not in us to direct our own steps. So what is the solution? He says, O eternal, correct me but with justice. Correct me. Instead of people asking God to correct them, they're more willing to violate a command and then to justify it and try to make it be okay. O eternal, correct me with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. I hope when we pray this prayer, and I hope we do pray this prayer from time to time, that we do say, God, please not in your anger. Help me to learn by reading your word. Help me to learn by humbling myself through prayer and fasting. Help me to learn by the mistakes of others so that I don't have to make the same mistakes. Not that I want others to make those mistakes, but they're going to be made. Help me to learn. Help me learn the easy way, God, rather than having you have to take a two-by-four and hitting me across the bridge of the nose to get my attention. 
Correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. I gave a sermon uh, a while back. Actually, I was in Big Sandy just before the camp. And the sermon was on the subject of trust. And in that sermon, a very different sermon from this one, uh, but for those who need titles, Can God Trust You? my title, Can God Trust You? I, I brought out something that I had never really thought of uh, long term. It, it just came to me at some point in time, I think even before that sermon, I think I gave a similar sermon. It's when it really uh, sunk in. I might have been up in Asheville when I gave it. But when you stop and you think about it, what does God want to know about you more than anything else? Take all the commandments And when I say set them aside, I don't mean uh, disregard them. But let's take all the commandment keeping. Let's take all the the other factors out of the the picture. What is it God wants of you? What is the reason that he's going to make you a son or daughter of his for all of eternity? Is it because you keep the commandments perfectly? Or is it because the heart is with it and your heart is with God and you're striving to do what God wants rather than what you may want? You're able to pray as Jeremiah did to correct me because I know that it's not within me to do these things. You know, what God, when you think about it, isn't it what God wants to know is can I trust this individual? Can I trust this person? Because he's going to be or she's going to be in my kingdom forever. And I don't need another Satan out there, Lucifer, who went astray. Isn't what God wants to know, can I trust you? When you think about it, all the commands he gives us are really a test to see what we're going to do. Now, when I say a test, I don't mean there's not a perfect, perfectly good reason for all those commands, because there really are. But ultimately, isn't he testing us to see what we're going to do? There's a, a message I, I gave this last week, a telecast that I recorded, title of which was Jeremiah's Message for the British and American Peoples. And as I was going through a bit of Jeremiah... I notice a theme that that runs through the book. And so let me give you a few scriptures uh, on that. I I try not to spend too much time on it. I've got eight of them listed here, so we'll go through them fairly quickly. I'll just read them. And if you want to write them down and look them up later, or if you can turn fast enough, that's fine. But Jeremiah 3, verse 17. Jeremiah 3, 17. It says, At that time... Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the eternal. So that's yet in the future. And all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the eternal, to Jerusalem. So that's really good news. But the last part of the verse, Jeremiah 3.17, No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. 
It's interesting that he uses the term over and over again, evil hearts. The dictates of their evil hearts. If we took that word out, the dictates of their hearts. We could sanitize it. We can make it sound a little bit nicer. But God says, when you follow the dictates of your heart, your heart is evil. Jeremiah 7 and verse 24. Jeremiah 7, 24 says, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts. The counsel of perhaps their peers, perhaps others, perhaps listening to the media, whoever it might be, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Jeremiah 9 Verse 14, Jeremiah 9, 14. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the bales which their fathers taught them. Following the bales that their fathers had taught them. It's interesting. We, we think, okay, well, that's talking about idolatry and everything like that. But, you know, this was a, a very good article by Mr. Smith and the... Uh, March 2021 edition of the uh, Tomorrow's World magazine, the rise of the new gods, the ancient heathen gods of old have been replaced. Are their replacements any better? And he talks about some of the new gods that we have. My wife and I were talking as we were coming here and, and we were listening to a little bit of news and I, I, you know, I just mentioned I probably, she's probably tired of me hearing it, but I get so disgusted with the celebrity gods that people have. You know, whether it be way back in time before some of you would even know the name Frank Sinatra, I would guess there are probably some people who've never heard of Frank Sinatra. I'm guessing. Uh, he was a little bit kind of before my time. Or whether it be Elvis Presley, you've probably heard that name. Or the Beatles, where people, you know, girls go and they're fainting and they're, you know, screaming and hollering and all the things that, that go on. Uh, people worship celebrities. They have their heroes. Politicians become their gods because they think that, well, this politician will get us out of this mess that we're in. We have many different gods. You know, in the Baals, among the Baals, they, uh, because that was really kind of a general term of, of the gods there, they killed their children. Even some of the kings of, of Israel or Judah, I forget which is Israel or Judah. I, I guess it was Manasseh, so that would have been um, Judah. Sacrificed his children, burned his children to the Baals. But do we not do the same in our world today when we abort our children? Not to hopefully appease a God, but just to appease our own thinking. And how do we reinterpret the law of God when people do such things? 
Sometimes we have teenagers or young adults who get themselves into a mess and then they find that's the solution or they think that's the solution only to suffer from guilt and depression later on in life. And I'm not trying to put a guilt chip on anyone. I really genuinely not. But that's happened. And so not just to appease some God someplace, but to avoid the embarrassment, to avoid the, avoid the, uh, the difficulty of raising a child as a single mother, or even married couples because they don't want another child. Or they have some doctor say, well, this child might be uh, handicapped in some way. So we reinterpret the God you shall not murder to suit our situation. The problem that Saul had is far more widespread than I think we realize. In Jeremiah 11, in verse 8, Jeremiah 11:8, it says, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. They didn't obey. They didn't listen with their ear, incline their ear. But they followed the dictates of their or his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. They were commanded to do it, but they didn't keep the command. Jeremiah 13, verse 10. Jeremiah 13, 10. This evil people who refused to hear my words. Yes, there was a refusal sometimes to hear God's words. We want to put them out of our minds. Who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. He was told to take this sash and bury it by the river Euphrates, and then he'd later dig it up, and it was worthless, good for nothing. And, and he says that when they walk after the gods that serve them, uh, that's, that's just going to be their, their actions, and the results are going to be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing following the dictates of their hearts because they refuse to hear God's words. Jeremiah 16, verse 12. Jeremiah 16, 12. I'd like to say more about this, except that Mr. Smith had uh, pointed something out about this about the time I was preparing this, uh, the, the telecast, actually had written the script, and he, he brought something out there, but I'll, I'll just tease you with that because I don't want to steal his his sermon or his point that he'll, I'm sure he'll make someplace down the road here. There's something very interesting there in verse 12 of Jeremiah 16. It says, you have done worse than your fathers. Hint, that's a little clue. You've done worse than your fathers, for behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. No one listens to him. You know, that's the problem so often is we just don't want to listen. We don't really care what someone else thinks. We just want to do it our own way. Jeremiah, the 18th chapter. I'm going to turn over there because I want to add a verse. Jeremiah 18. And I'll begin in verse 11. It says here in verse 11, Now therefore uh, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Eternal, 
Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. And they said that that is hopeless. Maraca change. So we will walk according to our own plans, and we will every one obey the dictates of his evil heart. We don't really want, we don't care. We're just going to do our own thing. Jeremiah 23, verse 17. They continually say to those who despise me, those who despise God, the Eternal has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Nothing's going to happen. There's no evil that will come upon us. We follow the dictates of our own hearts, but everything's going to be okay. You know, God is continually testing us to see what we will do. Whether we will trust and obey Him, or do as Saul who redefined God's command. Redefined it according to His own purpose. When we look at the passages of Scripture we find that God is testing all of us. He's testing all of us. We can go back to Exodus, the 16th chapter, and we see how he tested ancient Israel. After they'd come out of Egypt, uh, the children of Israel there, and we haven't gotten to Mount Sinai yet. That comes in 19th chapter. But here in Exodus 16, a very famous chapter as well, says, then the eternal, verse 4, then the eternal said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. Why? Why did God do it a certain way? He says, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. This was a test for them. They were to go out and they were to gather a certain amount, and they were not to save up for the next day. We find that after the first day, some did save it up to the next day, and it bred worms and it stank. I often think about that. I think, what would I have been like had I been back there? We know that some of the people, we don't know how many, we don't know what percentage, but we know that some of the people saved it over the next day. Now, coming from parents who went through the tribulation, not tribulation, <laughs> the, uh, well, I guess it could be, uh, went through the depression. Um, some of us grew up being rather frugal. You didn't want to waste. So I think about that. Would I have listened or would I have interpreted God's command my own way? I have to think about that. What would I have done? We often think, those idiots back then, look what they did. Well, I used to wonder that when I first came into the church and I read these stories or heard these stories read on the Days of Unleavened Bread, and I'd think, oh, how in the world could they ever do that? And, you know, the longer you're in the church, the more you realize that, yeah, we're no better than they are. And yet we supposedly have God's Spirit. So what excuse do we have when we interpret God's commands our own way? 
Over in verse um, 27. It says, now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. Again, I have to ask myself the question, would I have been amongst those that went out on the next day, the last, the seventh day? I feel good. I feel strong. I'm not tired. I'm not weak. Six days we've had this stuff. Why wouldn't it be there the next day? And the Eternal said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for this Lord has, or the Eternal has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. All of this was a test. God could have given them manna every day. He could have done it one day a week and they'd save it up. And He could have done it any number of ways, but he was doing it to test the people whether they would keep his law or not. Over in Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter, Deuteronomy 8, and verse 2. He says, You shall remember that the eternal your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. You see, this is right before they went in the promised land, after 40 years there. Uh, led you all this way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why did he do it the way he did? To humble you. And test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. that He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the eternal. That we are to live by every word of God, not by the ones that appeal to us or that we think are okay. And you know, this goes beyond just the, the Word of God, but are, are we a law-abiding people? Do we obey the laws of the land if they're not contradicting God's law? Of course, then that's something where people can can interpret it the way that they want to. What about instructions from the church? Decisions that are made by the church, do we go along with them, or do we reinterpret them the way that we want to reinterpret them? It's an attitude of mind that God is looking for. Notice verse 16. It says, Who fed you on the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you to do you good in the end. So the end result was that God wanted to do them good in the end, but obviously... They didn't pass the test very well. Back in Jeremiah, we read earlier the 17th chapter, verse 9. Jeremiah 17. Let's go back to that verse. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, that's such a mouthful, and we could repeat that. We could memorize that. But do we think about it? You know, when I was singing the, the hymns today, as so often I, I find myself mouthing words and, and thinking about something else, and I have to bring myself back, what am I singing? What are the words that I'm singing? Because there are so many powerful statements in those verses. And, and so I, I have to personally 
fight myself to because you, you come in here and you've got all kinds of things on your mind and talking to people and different things. And to come back and focus on what am I singing? Am I really praising God or am I just going through the motions? And when you think about the words, the law of God, as one of them, uh, the, the hymns was today, uh, and the one that comes from Psalm 8, uh, where, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him and, and his great power and all that he's done, the moon, the stars, and you've set in their course. And you think about some of the, the science you may know about a little bit. Uh, I, I saw a video a PragerU video on, you know, the odds of the universe and, and how, how many parameters there were uh, in, in order to have a universe where we have stars and we have planets and where life is possible. And they say that from the instant of the Big Bang or the cosmic expansion, which is not against, it's really not against what God has said because all we know is that the universe came into existence and how God did it we don't know, but and, and that first fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second, certain things had to be just right. The law of electromagnetics and of, of gravity and the strong force and the weak force all had to come together in just the right way to have the dirt between beneath our feet. And so I was singing that song. I was, I was just thinking back on that, meditating as I'm singing about... What God has done. So often in prayer, I, I think about that, and even this morning, and not only God's greatness just in the creating the universe, but all the things that go on in our body, which are just going on at lightning speed and so complex. It says here that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But notice verse 10, which we so rarely quote. I, the eternal, search the heart. I test the mind. Or as verse 10 says, uh, the, the secret parts or literally kidneys. Uh, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God is testing us. He is trying us constantly. He wants to see what we'll do. He wants to know, can I trust this person for all of eternity? And as I said, the, the title, Can God Trust You? Can He Trust You? Notice over in Second Chronicles a very interesting passage. Second Chronicles 32. It's interesting from this Perspective. We can read over it many times and we think, oh, well, Hezekiah failed the test, but here is Second uh, Chronicles 32 and verse 31. And it talks about all the good things that Hezekiah had done. But he says in verse 31, however, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land... Notice, God withdrew from him. In other words, God didn't inspire him one way or the other. God withdrew from him. Why? In order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. He wanted to know, what is Hezekiah going to do when my spirit is not 
influencing him necessarily to, to do it one way or the other. I want to see what he'll do on his own. That's an amazing statement there. How often does God kind of leave us alone to see what we're going to do to test us? You know, it's easy to laugh at Saul's pathetic statement where he said, I've performed the commandment of the Lord when all the evidence pointed otherwise. So easy for us to do that. It's so easy for us to condemn Saul and think, oh, that poor Saul, what a, what a stupid idiot he was. But we may very well be guilty of doing the same thing just in different ways. The mind of God is not ambiguous regarding rebellion. You know, God is, is very uh, direct when it comes to rebellion of any sort, whether it be a rebellious child or a rebellious adult, whatever it might be, whether we're talking about on the job, where the boss says do it one way and you interpret it another way. I think I've given the example where we were told to wash the windows at the natatorium there at Ambassador College. And they said to use squeegees. Well, if you're not used to using squeegees, they can be very difficult. But we used to have these these uh, blue uh, towels that had soap in them. And you could just, you know, just squirt water and, and do that. So instead of following the directions we were given, we decided to we could probably do it faster our own way. Which is great, except the smog is kind of greasy. And as the sun is going down after we've worked a good part of the day with scaffolding and quite, you know, tall windows and everything, and our bosses were looking from the inside and told us to come in there, all you could see were these round, greasy smudges. And we eventually had to do it the other way. But we interpreted the command in our own words and ways. The mind of God is not ambiguous regarding rebellion, which is what that was. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. The sin that Saul committed cost him the kingship, a dynasty, an eternal dynasty, you might say. It's our nature, nature to trust ourselves, to trust our heart. But God is testing us to see if he can trust us for all of eternity. Blaming God or someone else for our decisions will never end up well. We can misdirect, we can direct the problem to someone else. But our decisions are our decisions and we own them and we need to man up to them. Brethren, I hope that you can understand that what I'm trying to say today is very important. I hope you'll meditate on it. I hope you'll think about it. Let's learn from Paul's, I'm sorry, Saul's pathetic response. And recognize that these accounts, these examples are given to us upon whom the ends of the ages have come.